Well, good morning, Redeemer family. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And I'd encourage you to keep your Bible or your device open, because we'll be going back to this uh, again and again. This morning we're going to consider the anatomy of a miracle. And we tend to live in a pretty non-miraculous age, right, where everything can be explained away. But have you ever encountered a miracle? When I was 19 years old that summer, I came home from college to work at the same lawn care company, a professional lawn care company, that I had been at the previous two summers. Well, one Saturday morning, I got up early and borrowed Dad's car to go into work. And we lived out in the country. And as you left our street and turned right onto Tridelphia Road, that road took a long descent through the woods and then banked hard to the left down at the bottom. And at the bottom of that hill, there was a tree. And that tree was larger than the other trees, and it had been scarred by numerous fatal crashes around the bottom of the tree. Well, I'm listening to my cassette that morning. Do you all remember cassettes? I was listening to my cassette that morning, and I had reached down to fiddle with the cassette. And when I looked up, my right two tires had begun to go off the right-hand side of the road. And so I reacted, and I jerked the wheel to the left, but I overreacted, and the car started going across the road. I lost control of the car. The front right tire went into a ditch on the other side, and the car began to roll back through the woods. I was hanging upside down with the roof of the car crushed in, listening to Amy Grant saying, let me say once more that I love you. <laughs> I got out, and a, a crowd kind of gathered. Police eventually showed up on the scene, and the policeman said, is the driver of this vehicle still alive? And I said, sir, I'm right here. I'm fine. He said, son, you should have been killed in that accident. It's a miracle that you're alive. I walked away without a scratch. I wasn't sore the next day. Have you encountered a miracle? This morning, as we come to our passage, we're going to look at Acts 8, 26 through 40 under four headings. First, we're going to consider uh, two different contexts. Then we'll look at two different people. Then we'll see one appointed means, and then we'll see two glorious results. So two different contexts, two different people, one appointed means, and two glorious results. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. God multiplies witnesses to fulfill his mission by the miracle of conversion. Let me say that again. God multiplies witnesses to fulfill his mission by the miracle of of conversion. Now, when we come to our text this morning, there's one textual note that you need to be aware of. Acts 8.37 does not appear in your Bibles, nor will it appear as we read it this morning. 
And that's because the earliest manuscripts of your Bible, the earliest copies, don't have this verse. And so it's possible that this is a later edition. And so to preserve the original text with its exacting scrutiny, this verse is omitted from your Bible. But just so you know, the later manuscripts add this. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So with that note in mind, let's focus our attention on God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. Acts 8, beginning at verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water... The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went, away, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So far, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, may he write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning as we come to consider a conversation between a Hellenist evangelist and an Ethiopian eunuch, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many, May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. 
So first of all, this morning, let's consider together two different contexts, two different contexts. The mission of the book of Acts, the summary of the book of Acts, is found in Acts 1.8. And if you're going to memorize anything from the book of Acts, and we would encourage you to embed God's Word deep in your heart through memorization, it would be this verse. Can I get that first slide, Andre? Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But you see, this this isn't just the mission of the book of Acts. This also serves as the outline of the book of Acts. You see, in Acts 1 through 7, can I get that next slide, Andre? In Acts 1 through 7, uh, Luke writes about witnesses in Jerusalem. And in Acts 8 through 12, he's talking about witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And in 13 through 28, it's witnesses to the end of the earth. And in the first half of the book, he focuses on Peter and Jewish Christianity. And on the second part of the book, he focuses on Paul and Gentile Christianity. So you get to this transition in Acts 8.1, and the scene changes. You move from Jerusalem, where we've been the first seven chapters, now you're into Samaria and Judea. And how is it that you get to Samaria? It's because of Saul's persecution in chapter 7. Right? Saul has executed Stephen, and the church scatters. But as the church scatters, the gospel is being preached. The gospel is being preached. And this is vintage Jesus. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And so Jesus uses the persecution of the church to fulfill the mission of the church. He uses the martyrdom of Stephen to advance his kingdom. It's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's a judo-like move, right? Jesus takes Satan's attack and he flips it over and now the gospel is being preached. Persecution drives the gospel into Samaria. And then we get to chapter 8 and in chapter 8 focuses on Philip. It focuses on Philip. And here's a map of Philip's journeys. In the first part, of act well so so he's in Samaria excuse me so he starts off in Jerusalem here and then because of persecution he's scattered in the first part of acts 8 he's up here in Samaria and then we get to our passage this morning and the angel of the lord says i need you to come to this desert road from Jerusalem all the way down to Gaza so he's, he, he goes following the Holy Spirit, and he comes at least 50 miles down here to this road and shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. But then at the end of our text in verse 40, Philip goes on his way, and he comes up here to Azotus, and then he preaches the gospel in all the towns along the way, and finally he gets up here to Caesarea. And do you see what's happening here in the text? The gospel is being preached. Jesus' witnesses are now in Judea and Samaria. The mission of the church is being fulfilled. Thanks, Andre. Now, 
As we come to our passage this morning in the second half of Acts chapter 8, Luke is setting up a contrast. And he's contrasting the first part of, Luke, of Acts chapter 8 with the second part of Acts chapter 8. And these are two different Philip episodes, and they differ drastically. L- listen to the differences. Instead of preaching to Samaritans in Samaria, Philip is now preaching to an Ethiopian in Judea. Instead of being scattered because of severe persecution, he's led by an angel of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Instead of preaching to many, he's now preaching to one. Instead of preaching in the cities, he's now preaching in a desert road. Instead of speaking to crowds, he's now running alongside a chariot. Instead of vying for attention against a magician, he's now approaching someone who's reading Isaiah. Instead of initiating with signs and healings, he now initiates with a question. You see, the circumstances, the context couldn't be more different. And do you see what Luke is saying? He's saying there are many ways to share the gospel. There are many different circumstances. There are many different contexts. And my question this morning is are you ready? Are you ready to be a witness? Are you ready to fulfill God's mission? Now, you may not be called to preach to large crowds and we don't run alongside chariots today, but what about when the Holy Spirit leads you to be His witness at the office or at the gym or in a restaurant or with a friend or on a run or in the midst of tragedy, or through your art, or with your neighbors? Are you ready to be a witness? Even though the context couldn't be more different, some things are the same. It's the same message. It's the good news of Jesus. Compare verse 12 and verse 35. It's the same response, belief and baptism, compare verse 12 to verse 38, and it's the same result, joy, compare verse 8 to verse 39. You see, Luke is saying, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, being a witness is remarkably simple. It's sharing the good news about Jesus wherever you find yourself. So there are two different context. And then we have two different people. Luke here is describing a conversation between a eunuch and an evangelist. That kind of sounds like the beginning of a joke, right? And a eunuch and evangelist walk into it. Anyway, um, and this passage is shaped by these two people and their ethnic and cultural identities. You see, their ethnicities, their backgrounds, their identities matter and shape the text. So what do we know about the eunuch? Well, look at verse 27. The first thing we find out about the eunuch is that he is Ethiopian. Now, Ethiopian is used 26 times in the Old Testament, and this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it refers to an African, a black man, probably from what the Old Testament calls Cush, which would have been modern-day Sudan, just north of modern-day Ethiopia. 
And for Luke's readers, Ethiopia was at the very edge of the known world. It's beyond Roman rule. It's more than a thousand miles south of Jerusalem. It represented an unknown, exotic, faraway place. Homer's Odyssey speaks of the far-off Ethiopians, the furthermost of men. And in the Old Testament, the people of Cush were included in prophecies in Isaiah 11 and Zephaniah 3, showing the scope and extent of the Lord's saving work, that God will call to Himself people as far away as Ethiopia. Not only is he Ethiopian, he's also a eunuch. And he's the only eunuch mentioned in the New Testament, although Jesus refers to eunuchs generally in Matthew 19.12 when he talks about the saying, it's better not to marry. In the Old Testament and in the ancient Near East, eunuchs were commonly found in royal courts, especially like in Esther around the king's harem. Why? Because eunuchs are altered so that there were no problems with the royal line. Or you also find eunuchs in Daniel, where eunuchs were in charge of personnel. Eunuchs oversaw Daniel and his three friends. And by the way, I didn't know this until I didn't find this out, remember this until Wednesday this week. But in Jeremiah 38, there's another reference to an Ethiopian eunuch. And his name is Ebed Melech, which when translated means servant of the king. And this Ethiopian eunuch in Jeremiah 38, Ebed-Melech, sees Jeremiah the prophet as unjustly imprisoned. And this Ethiopian eunuch rescues Jeremiah from his uh, unjust imprisonment. So our, our eunuch here is an Ethiopian eunuch. He's also a court official in the court of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. And Candace, by the way, here is a title. It's not a name. It's a title like president or pharaoh. And our, our eunuch serves as a treasurer, which is an important role in the court. It's in charge of all of the queen's wealth. And his own wealth is apparent. Not only is he a member of the royal court, but he also rides in a chariot. And he's wealthy enough to own a scroll of Isaiah and to take a trip to Jerusalem, which would have been more than a thousand miles and would have taken more than five months to go on that trip one way. But owning a scroll of Isaiah and taking a trip to Jerusalem shows something else about this Ethiopian eunuch. They show his religious devotion. You see, he's interested in the things of God especially in the God of Israel. Now, he's probably not ethnically Jewish, but he's also not a Gentile, strictly speaking. Because in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is described as the first Gentile convert. So our Ethiopian eunuch is probably a God-fearer or a proselyte. A God-fearer would have been someone who feared and believed in the God of Israel, but wasn't circumcised. But a proselyte was a God-fearer who was circumcised and was bound to keep the Mosaic law. Neither the proselyte nor the God-fearer are ethnically Jewish, but Jews are allowed to associate with both of them. 
Now, this Ethiopian eunuch had just been to Jerusalem to worship. And as a proselyte, he would have been allowed to enter the inner courts of God's temple. But as a God-fearer, he would have been restricted to the outer courts of God's temple. But being a eunuch trumps both of them. You see, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, eunuchs were forbidden to enter the presence of God. They were forbidden to enter the assembly of the people. So this Ethiopian eunuch, this powerful, wealthy, distinguished man, would have made a thousand-mile journey to worship the God of Israel, and he would have been excluded. He would have been cut off from the people of God. And yet he's still reading the scroll of Isaiah. He's still pondering the gospel. Why? Because God is drawing this Ethiopian eunuch to himself. So we have the Ethiopian eunuch. Then secondly, we have Philip the evangelist. And Philip, we learn in Acts chapter 6, is one of the seven who was appointed to resolve the neglect of Hellenist widows in the daily distribution. And this was injustice in the church. The Hellenist widows were being overlooked when there was the distribution of goods to the people. And that injustice has an ethnic dimension. The Hellenist widows were being overlooked by Hebrew Christians. And Hebrews were ethnically and culturally Jewish, and Hellenists were ethnically Jewish, but they were culturally Greek. Now remember, in the Old Testament, justice meant special care for four categories, the quartet of the vulnerable, right? It was special care for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the sojourner. Well, this Hellenist widow fits in two of those categories. This is injustice in the church. It's cultural oppression. And the solution here is to give power to the oppressed. You see, the disciples ordained seven men who were the forerunners of the office of deacon. And those seven men, it says in Acts 6, are men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. But every one of them has a Hellenist name. You see, it's the Hellenists that are appointed to do justice for the Hellenist widows. And so Philip was a Hellenist with cultural sensitivities who, would have, who was appointed to settle injustice. And when we get to the beginning of chapter 8 of the book of Acts, as witnesses go from Jerusalem to Samaria, notice the wisdom in the Holy Spirit's plan. You see, Samaritans and Hebrews had been feuding for hundreds of years. And part of the reason for the feud was the cultural and ethnic divide. You see, the Hebrews were culturally and ethnically Jewish. But the Samaritans were half Jewish and half Gentile. So God sends a third party. He sends Philip, a Hellenist, who's a believer that is culturally Greek, like the Samaritans, but ethnically Jewish, like the Hebrews. And Philip bridges the gap. 
Philip brings the gospel to Samaria. And as he preaches the word, many believe and many are baptized. And the church expands. And God's mission is being fulfilled. And so now we get to our passage in Acts 8, 26-40, and you have a Hellenist evangelist who's speaking with an Ethiopian eunuch. And this is a cross-cultural conversation. This is cross-cultural evangelism. Maybe it's not missions because Philip isn't moving into his world and living with him, but it's certainly missional. Philip is living a missional life. Philip, in obedience to the Holy Spirit, becomes a witness to someone who is ethnically and culturally different from him. You may find it easy to talk to PLUs, people like us, but sometimes, for the sake of the gospel, we're called to move into a world where people aren't like us. And that's part of God's plan. So you have two different contexts and you have two different people. And then we have one appointed means. So as Philip, this Hellenist evangelist, approaches the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot, Philip hears the eunuch reading aloud. And by the way, silent reading is a relatively modern development. And the eunuch is reading the scroll of Isaiah. And Philip asks him, look at verse 30, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I unless someone guides me? And there's a certain humility there. It takes a certain humility to admit that you don't understand. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53, specifically verses 7 and 8. And he's reading from the Septuagint. In Isaiah 53, we have the fourth servant song in Isaiah. You've got them in 42, 49, 50, and now in 53. And these servant songs in Isaiah are about the suffering servant. And here's what the eunuch is reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before his shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. It continues in verse 33. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And I think it's possible that the eunuch identified with the suffering servant. You see, no one can describe the eunuch's descendants either because they don't exist. The eunuch's life will be taken away from the earth and he won't have a generation. And I think the eunuch has also experienced humiliation. He's just traveled a thousand miles to Jerusalem with a deep longing to worship the God of Israel. But he would have been excluded. He would have been cut off from the people of God. That's humiliation. That's rejection. Look at verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opens his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, 
he told him the good news about Jesus. I would have loved to have been there for this sermon, right? The idea is very similar to what Stephen did in Acts chapter 7. It's similar to what Jesus does on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, uh, when Luke says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them, these two disciples on the Emmaus Road, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You see, the reason that we can preach the good news of Jesus, beginning with this scripture, is that all scripture is about Jesus. All scripture is pointing us to Jesus. So Philip, I imagine, preaches the gospel according to Isaiah. Maybe he begins with the holiness of God. Remember that beautiful picture of God in the temple and you see the cherubim saying one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Philip probably talks about God's just judgment for sin and the hard-heartedness of a stubborn people who reject God again and again. He probably talks about sinners who are cut off from God. And maybe he got to the promises of God and the deliverance of Hezekiah, sharing God's love for his people and his power to save. But just in Isaiah 53 itself, he would have shared the vicarious and atoning character of the servant's death. We read that this morning in our call to worship. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you keep reading in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Out of the anguish of his soul, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And Philip is saying to the Ethiopian eunuch, he's saying, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus is the lamb that was slaughtered. Jesus bore our griefs. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. As God laid our iniquity on Jesus, we were counted righteous. Jesus suffered humiliation and injustice, and Jesus' life was taken away from the earth. And Philip might have said, do you remember when you went to worship at the temple? And you were cut off. You were excluded from the people of God. Jesus was cut off so that you could be engrafted in. Jesus was excluded so that you would always and forever be included. You see, that's the gospel according to Isaiah. And it seems like Philip then might have gone to the Great Commission, the last words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples of 
all nations, right? Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the eunuch sees water and he says, what prevents me from being baptized? And in verses 38 and 39, Philip baptizes the eunuch. And just as an aside here, these verses are often used to support the argument for immersion as the mode of baptism, over and against pouring or sprinkling. And it's used that way because, did you notice it in verse 38 there? They go down into the water. But two quick notes here. First, they're in a desert, so how much water is there? It's not like water's overflowing any, every place. And secondly, if the eunuch was actually immersed, then so was Philip, because they both went down into the water. But that's not the point of the passage. The point here is that the eunuch believed and was baptized. And so Philip applies the sacrament of baptism, wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost signifies and seals our engrafting into Christ, our partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace, and our engagement to be the Lord's. Now, do you remember how Philip got here? He was preaching the gospel right up in Samaria, and then he's led by the Spirit to this desert road. Why? Well, Paul makes it very clear in Romans 10 that the gospel must be preached in order for someone to believe. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him on whom they haven't believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so the Spirit sends Philip to preach the gospel. You see, in salvation, God not only appoints the ends, in this case the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch, but he also appoints the means and so he sends Philip to preach the gospel. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, as God has appointed the elect to glory, so also he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. You see, if God is going to save someone, He's also going to send someone else to share the good news of the gospel. That's always the appointed means of salvation in every circumstance, at all times, in every place. In order for people to be saved, the gospel must be proclaimed. And this makes a task of a witness relatively simple. You only have to master one thing, you see, God's appointed means of salvation is sharing the good news of the gospel from the Word of God. It's one appointed means. And then that leads in our passage this morning to two glorious results. The first glorious result is first fruits. The principle of selectivity says that you can't say everything when you say anything or you end up saying nothing at all. So as Luke is writing this passage, my question is this, why does he include their ethnic 
identities. He could have done this without developing those ethnic identities. Why spend the time, the ink, the space? It's essential to the story that the eunuch is Ethiopian. You see, Luke is showing you that the Holy Spirit is fulfilling the mission of Acts 1.8. The gospel through this Ethiopian eunuch is beginning to go to the ends of the earth. And Luke includes this detail without knowing the importance of the role that Africa would play in the history of Christianity. Africa produced many significant early church fathers, including Origen and Augustine and Tertullian and Athanasius. And these men shaped the doctrine of the Trinity. They shaped the doctrine of the person of Christ. They developed methods of exegesis and biblical translation. They fought heresies of Gnosticism, Arianism, and Pelagianism. We are incredibly indebted to our African forefathers on, in the faith. We stand on their shoulders. Nor would Luke have known, as he included this detail, that today there are more Christians in Africa than in any other continent on the face of the earth. 685 million Christians are in Africa. And do you know where all of that started? It started right here with the Ethiopian eunuch. He was the first fruits. But the second glorious result that we'll see is a miracle. It's a miracle. Now, the word miracle doesn't appear at all in the text, but there is a miracle here. Did you find it? The Spirit, in verse 39, carries Philip away. And that may be a small miracle. It happens to Old Testament prophets all the time, that they're done with their work and the Spirit carries them away. But the bigger miracle here is what happens in the heart of the Ethiopian eunuch. You see, conversion is widely regarded as the greatest miracle in the Bible. The Ethiopian was dead in his trespasses and sins. He was without hope and alone in the world, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And do you know the lengths that God went to to bring about this miracle? You see, it's not just that the Spirit called a Hellenistic evangelist, evangelist to a desert road to run alongside a chariot, but the Spirit also orchestrated their ethnic identities. He's inspired the scroll of Isaiah. He's piqued the curiosity of the eunuch, and he's empowered Philip's proclamation. God, through the Spirit, was orchestrating every last detail. Why? To work the miracle of regeneration. To work this miracle of conversion in the life of the Ethiopian eunuch. God takes a heart of stone and transforms it into a heart of flesh. He moves the Ethiopian from darkness to light. He takes him from death to life. And this Ethiopian eunuch, in his conversion... He would have fulfilled Isaiah 56 
verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. As the Ethiopian eunuch would have read it as he read his scroll further from beyond this conversation. Isaiah 56, verse 3. Let not the foreigner, the Ethiopian eunuch's a foreigner, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And maybe Philip includes that in his gospel presentation. And what was the Ethiopian's response? Verse 39. He went on his way rejoicing. And if you're a believer here this morning, then God has worked that same miracle of conversion in you. He's weaved various parts of your story with people and context in such a way that the appointed means of the good news was preached to your heart to bring about your conversion. And if you're not a believer here this morning, maybe this right now is the appointed means that God is using to begin the work of conversion in you. But the miracle of our conversion begins well before we're even born. Kevin DeYoung says, in eternity, God freely chose us. And on Calvary, He definitely redeemed us. And in time, He effectively converts us. And when we ponder all that God has done to rescue our souls from death, when that becomes real to our hearts, we too, like the Ethiopian, will go on our way rejoicing. And as we do, we will become His witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as His witnesses, we will get the chance to participate in this miracle that's happening every day around the world. It's the greatest miracle in the Bible. It's the miracle of conversion. You see, God multiplies witnesses to fulfill His mission by the miracle of conversion. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, by Your appointed means, at just the right time, as You were working in our hearts to cause us to be born again, You sent someone to proclaim the Gospel. And I pray that as we rejoice in the beauty and the mystery of the miracle of our conversion, I pray that the Holy Spirit would come upon us with power and that we would be your witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We ask it in Jesus' name who makes this all possible. Amen.